0: John 18, where we are this morning, we started in last week, and if you were here for that study, you'll remember that it was a little bit jarring. I mean, we've been many, many chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, in the intimate and sort of private conversation between Jesus and his disciples. In John 17, we were actually seeing the intimate conversation between Jesus and his Father and his high priestly prayer, And, and there's a sense in which, and we talked about this last week, that as you're listening to this private instruction, Jesus preparing his disciples, and by extension, preparing us for what it looks like to be his followers, that you kind of get lulled into a place of like, yeah, you know what, everything's good, everything's peaceful, like God is in control and everything's going to be all right. You listen to Jesus pray, he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, he even prays for us, and you just kind of, like, if you're like me, as we're reading these chapters and studying it, you're like, wow, this is so good. And then you get to John 18 and it's like the wheels come off the train, right? Are there, yeah, there's wheels on a train. The wheels come off. And, uh, and, and what we've got in John 18 is we see the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, one of his disciples. We see the arrest of Jesus, and actually, when we pick it up here today, we see them binding Jesus and leading him off to trial. Now, Jesus will face three different accusers in the trial. He'll face a guy named Annas. Um, you might be a little bit confused, even as we read it, because they refer to both Annas and Caiaphas is the high priest. And you go like, which one is it? Who's the high priest here? It's a kind of an interesting story. Annas was the high priest, and he's the father-in-law, as it tells us. He's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. But the Romans had ousted Annas. They had basically taken him out of his role. And while they had done that sort of formally as Roman authority, and they put in several other high priests over time, uh, the Jews recognized that the high priestly role was one for life. So they would continue to refer to a guy like Annas as the high priest, even though the Romans wouldn't have recognized his authority, at that point they were recognizing Caiaphas, but it's a title he would have retained, and most theologians and historians will agree that really, Annas was still the power behind Caiaphas, even during this time. So that's why they both are called the high priest, it was sort of like we would still refer to George W. Bush or Jimmy Carter or any of those as president, even though they're not currently serving as president, Um, that's a title they would retain, that's why Annas is called the high priest here. Jesus is taken away and we read this together in 12 it says so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him imagine this for a second Jesus the creator of the universe the one who upholds all things by the power of his word bound by his own creation and carried off to trial it's a it's a stirring picture First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Those of you who have been in this study of John with us over time, you'll remember that it was Caiaphas who said, this guy needs to die for the good of the people. He unwittingly prophesied a truth that he himself didn't even understand. We recognize that in the story and the purposes of Jesus, it was absolutely essential for him to die for the good of the people, but that wasn't what Caiaphas meant by his initial prophecy. They take Jesus before Annas, and then what we see here is a, is a bit of a back and forth. So I love the way John has organized the section we're studying this morning, because he juxtaposes the testimony of Jesus with the denials of Peter. Peter. And instead of just telling us the story of Peter's denials and then telling us the story of Jesus' testimony, he actually cuts back and forth. It's like a camera A, camera B, camera A, camera B. He goes back and forth between them. He shows us a little bit of Peter's denial, Peter lying essentially about who he was and what he believed, and then he shows us Jesus standing before Annas and absolutely clearly proclaiming the truth of who he and always claim to be. And the reason John sort of puts these two sections together the way he does is he wants us to see the contrast. He wants us to feel the difference between Jesus absolutely admitting who he was and Peter denying who he was. He wants us to see that. He wants us to see the two side by side. And so we're just going to kind of work our way through here. It says in verse 13, excuse me, verse 15, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. We see the first of his three denials here. And I want to draw your attention to a couple of things as we begin our study this morning. The first thing I want you to see is is that the circumstances, a lot of times when we read about the denial of Peter, or when we think about it, we want to paint him as like this wicked, evil villain who does this abominable thing here. Like this is just the lowest of the low. Peter denying Jesus, like what could be worse? But I, I want you to press pause on that thinking for a second, because that's not exactly what we see relayed here. What we see relayed here is a man who falls into a very similar trap to one that you and I fall into on almost a daily basis. People fail to give Peter recognition for being one of just a few disciples who didn't abandon Jesus at this point. In fact, a couple of the other gospel writers will say that when Jesus is arrested, the other disciples flee. Peter didn't do that. This other disciple that's mentioned here didn't do that. They're still following along. They're still remaining relatively close to Jesus, even as he faces trials. But many times our minds go straight to his denial, and we ignore the fact that he's actually moving here with some purpose that has to do with allegiance. I also want you to note that when he denies Jesus the first time, that that's not not like a, a purposeful plan that he's sort of put into effect. This isn't a formal challenge. I'll say this as we look at the text here. I think most of us do pretty good with formal challenges, right? If you have a coworker or family member who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who doesn't believe that he rose from the dead, who doesn't believe that the Bible is true, when you have somebody that comes to you and says, I don't believe that's true, and I want you and I to have a debate about it, I think most of us do pretty good with formal challenges, right? Right? when we can prepare ourselves, when we can do our research, when we know that there's an attack coming or when we're gonna sort of face the Inquisition, I think we do a pretty good job. I think most of the time that Christians do really well when they're in a moment of crisis, right? And somebody puts a gun to their head and says, hey, deny Jesus. I think most of us would pass that test and we would not deny him. It's not those formal challenges. It's not those dramatic challenges that trip us up. The things typically that trip us up are things just like this. This is just Peter walking into the courtyard of Annas's outer home. He's walking into the courtyard, and it's just a servant girl. This isn't a formal challenge. This isn't something that was prepared in advance. It's not something that he was ready for. It's not something he anticipated. This is just a casual conversation. And this slave girl looks at him, and she goes, just to be clear, you're not one of the followers of Jesus, right? And it comes out so easy. No, I'm not. I think that happens to us a lot. It's not the formal challenges that trip us up. It's the informal inquiries, right? It's the casual exchanges. It's the places around the water cooler at work when somebody goes, hey, what did you do this weekend? And you go, I don't know, just this and that. When in reality, what you did is you set aside time to come and worship the creator of the universe with fellow Christians. Those places where we have an opportunity to declare the truth, where we have an opportunity to articulate the truth of what we believe, where we have an opportunity to lift up the name of Jesus and present him to people around us but instead because it's just a casual conversation or an informal question we dodge the truth sometimes we say things that actually aren't true because it's just easier we just sort of go with the flow i don't think that what's happening here is a formulated plan on peter's part to deny and reject his faith in christ i think what's happening is he just kind of gets caught off guard and in a moment of being asked a casual question he says the thing that's easiest to say she asks a question leading to a a no response. She says, you're not one of his followers, are you? And the easiest thing there is for him just to go, no, I'm not, and just kind of get through the gate. I think you and I have to be on guard. We have to be very careful, because these kinds of casual interactions are actually way more prevalent than the formal challenges in our daily lives. Every day, you and I have people asking us questions about what we believe. They might not come right out and say, what do you believe? But they're asking those kinds of questions. And if we're not careful, we'll fall into these same kinds of denials as a result of a casual conversation or an informal inquiry. I remember... um, when I was in fifth grade, uh, we got a brand new PE teacher, right? Brand new PE teacher. He hadn't been in our school before. A lot of the teachers had been there for a long time. The students, we all kind of knew each other. And on the very first day of school, my fifth grade PE teacher, new guy, he shows up and he, he's got the roster for class. And he says, Okay, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just getting to know you guys. I'm going to call the names out. Let me know if you're here. And then I want you to let me know if there's uh, another name that you want to go by, right? Now, what he meant was some of you are named Jonathan, but you go by Johnny, or some of you are named Susanna, but you go by Susie. In my head, he said, if there's another name you want to go by, let me know. And I thought, well, this is my chance, right? So uh, he calls off these other names, you know, Jonathan, he says, yeah, my name's Johnny, Susanna, yeah, my name's Susie. He comes to me, Darren McWaters. I said, yeah, I go by Scott, right? And all. <laughs> All of my uh, all of my classmates kind of look at me like, what? And I'm like, well, that's, that's just what I'm going with. That's what I decided. He asked if there's another name I want to be called by. It wasn't that I thought that through. I didn't really think through the ramifications of that. He asked a question, and it was just easy to kind of go, well, you wanted to know if I want to be called something else. I'd kind of like to be called Scott. Now... To be fair, Scott is my middle name, so it wasn't like, you know, out of nowhere, but it was just, I'd kind of always been one of those guys who wished I had a nickname. Didn't you ever wish you had a nickname, like somebody giving you something cool, and I'm not saying Scott is necessarily a cool nickname, no offense to those of you who are nicknamed that. But it became very problematic for me in PE because one thing that happens almost every week in PE is that the PE teacher will call out your name just before hurling something at you at high speeds, right? So frequently in fifth grade, I got hit in the face with a basketball or a softball or a dodgeball because he'd be like, Scott! And he'd throw the ball to me and I'd be like, who's that? We have somebody like that? (laughs) Boink, er, you know, hit in the head. Eventually, at the end of fifth grade, I I pulled him aside, and I was like, don't call me that anymore. Like, my name's Darren. I don't know why I told you that. It wasn't a a calculated answer to the question. It It was just the thing that sort of flowed out of me in the moment, and it created some trouble. You and I need to be thinking purposefully about the way we answer casual inquiries. When we have conversations with people about What matters most to us? When we have conversations with people about what we believe or where we stand or why we live the lives we do, it will be easiest for us to simply set aside the truth of God's Word, set aside the truth of who God is. And the better option, and this is what John is trying to juxtapose for us here, is instead to take a stand for what is true, what we truly believe. And so he gives us the pattern of Jesus. And I just want to rapidly here in the rest of this text, following that first denial of Peter, I want to look at the model that John gives us of Peter's response to Annas's question, excuse me, of Jesus' response to Annas's questions. There are five key things I want you to see in Jesus' response. So look at verse 19. It says in 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So Annas basically looks at Jesus and he says, We want to know about your disciples. We want to know how many disciples you've got. What are the kinds of things you've been saying to them? What sort of trouble are you inciting? And I love Jesus' response. Because his response to these questions is really simple. His honesty and his truth just goes on display. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus says, hey, everything you could want to know about me is visible, right? I've been living my life out in the light. I've been saying the things that I've been saying out to anybody who will hear me. I've been in the synagogues and I've been in the temple courts. I haven't done anything in secret. And so part of the response, and, and we could easily juxtapose this with Peter here, Peter is wanting to kind of remain in the shadows. He's kind of wanting to hunker down. He's wanting to protect himself. He's wanting to preserve his own comfort. Jesus, on the other hand, in light of Annas's question, says, Hey, everything that can be known is readily available. I've been doing things out in the open. He says, I have spoken openly to everyone. It's a life lived out into the open. It wasn't too many weeks ago that you and I we were talking about our new vision stuff, right? And one of those core vision pillars is the idea of demonstrable faith. That it isn't enough to believe things in our heart. It's not enough to know things intellectually. That you and I have to live out the reality of what we believe so that in the moments where we have the opportunity to have prophetic engagement, to speak truth into the life of other people, our witness doesn't erode out from underneath us, right? We live a life of demonstrable faith. What is demonstrable faith? It's just living a life out in the open. Living a life of faith and faithfulness out where it can be seen. The first thing Jesus leans on is his visibility. His visibility, right? He says, I've been teaching and talking out in the open, in the synagogues, in the courts. It's right there. And in fact, not only is he visible, but he also talks about truth, right? He talks about his own honesty. He says, I don't have any secrets. I haven't been doing, this is verse 20, I have said nothing in secret. Jesus is saying here, look, there's no sort of clandestine operation. There's no backroom conversations that you don't know about. I've made it clear that I've come to set the captives free, to declare the year of Jubilee. I've made it clear what I'm doing here. I've come to rescue people and turn them back to God and I, haven't, I don't have any secrets. There's no sort of plotting or machinations behind the scenes. It's so one of the things I actually love about following Jesus is that there's no secret knowledge, right? Pastors and leaders, theologians, we don't have some like secret level of wisdom that if you stick around long enough, I'll let you in on, right? Everything that we believe, everything I believe, everything this church believes can be found in the pages of Scripture. And if it's not there, we don't believe it, Right? That is the core of what we are doing and who we are following. It's written in God's word and there is no secret extra manual you're gonna find once you've been around long enough. I don't have extra knowledge that you don't have. I don't have some secret insight that God's given to me as a shepherd that regular people can't have. I am a regular person just like you. All of us have the ability to seek after Christ and to grow in the knowledge of him and to uncover the truths of the Bible. The Bible is open to us. Jesus says, there's no secrets. There's nothing hidden. There's no, you know, private sort of machination behind the scene. It's all visible and it's all honest. He's visible and he's honest. Not only that, but then he points them, he points them back to those who've listened to him. He says in 21, "Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said." I love this because we just studied, not too long ago, we studied in John 17 that Jesus said to the Father, you've given me your word and I have given your word to those that you've given to me, right? I've given them the words to say. Essentially in John 17, you and I are commissioned, we are sent in the very same way that Jesus himself was sent. We have been called to articulate the very same message. We have been called to love the same way. And so I love here in John 18 that that Jesus now says, hey, if you want to know what I've been teaching and you want to know who I am and you want to know what I'm doing, the best way for you to find those things out is to talk to those who've been listening to me because it is now their message to communicate that truth. I like the fact that Jesus isn't publicly declaring it anymore. Why? Because he's handed that public declaration off to us. We are the ones who are testifying about what Jesus has said and who he is and what he's done. That testimony now is ours. We've been sent like Christ himself. So here before Annas, Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time re-articulating his message or re-articulating the things that he said or going over it one more time. Instead he says, you want to know what I've said? Talk to those who've been listening to me because they can tell you. They will tell you all the very same things. Jesus is not only visible, he's not only honest, but he's known. He lives a life out in the light. He's known to other people. They know who he is and what he has said. And there's a great reminder for us, again, as we juxtapose this with Peter, what's Peter trying to do? He's trying to remain in the shadows. What can be known about Peter isn't necessarily all that good. Remember, it was just moments ago that Peter took a sword and chopped off one of the slave's ears, right? Jesus Jesus recognized in that moment that if it had gone much further, Peter himself could be facing capital punishment. Peter's reputation isn't awesome. What is known about him isn't that great. Let me ask you this. Do the people that you work with, the people in your family, the people in your neighborhood, do they know you? And when, when I ask you do they know you, do they know what's most important to you? And that sort of begs the question, what's most important to you? Because some of your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers may know you, but all they know is that you're an Angels fan, which is disappointing, right? I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I, I it seems dumb for me to say that now that the Dodgers are out, but whatever. I know, I know. Maybe the only thing that they know about you is that you're kind, or maybe the only thing they know about you is that you're funny, or maybe the only thing that they know about you whatever. Or maybe they don't know those things about you at all. Maybe there are people who look at you and they go, yeah, I have some concerns about this person because I see the way he talks to his wife or I see the way she talks to her kids or I watch the way they conduct their business or I see the way they drive in the neighborhood or I watch the way they work as a fellow co-worker in the place where we are. And instead of it being a known witness for the truth of who God is and the transformation that God has done in you, maybe the testimony that you're living, the things that people know about you in your particular sphere of influence are actually degrading your witness. They actually are working at counter purposes to the revelation of Christ. Peter doesn't want to be known. He wants to hunker down, he wants to hide, why? Because he feels guilty. Because he hasn't made great choices in this case. So he tries to cover that up. He wants to stay in the shadows. He doesn't want what he's done necessarily to be known. But Jesus says, hey, what can be known about me is out there, you wanna know about it, talk to those who know me, talk to those who've heard me, they'll tell you the same thing. Jesus is visible, he's honest, He's pure, excuse me, he's known. And then, fourthly and fifthly, he's pure and courageous. Look at what happens next. In 22, it says, When Jesus had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? So, this soldier, this officer that's standing there, he hears Jesus say, Hey, if you want to know what I've said, ask the people who heard me. And then Jesus gets punched in the face, right, by one of these guards. Imagine for a second, right? Imagine the audacity, like I just think about punching the creator of the universe in the face, right? It's not a good day for this dude, right? He punches Jesus in the face, and then he goes on to say, that isn't how you talk to the high priest. Well, now, for the record, Jesus is actually the high priest, right? And not just in the Jewish tradition, Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's like, he's the top of the charts. And he just got punched in the face. But look at Jesus' response to that injustice, to that opposition. It says, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. Is that how you answer the high priest? 23, Jesus answered, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. The fourth thing I want you to see in Jesus' testimony is that he's unafraid of justice. He's unafraid of justice, and I find that to be rooted in his own purity. He's not worried about them finding out something about him that he's done wrong. In fact, he says, hey, if if I've done something wrong, point it out. You feel comfortable saying that to people? How comfortable do you feel looking at your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers and going, hey, if I've done something wrong, point it out. No, most of the time you don't make that declaration because you've done something wrong, right? The great thing about Jesus is that he's lived a holy life. He's lived a perfect life. There is nothing to accuse him for. But even for us, there's something really beautiful about living a life of integrity, living a life of purity, of honesty and visibility, so that we can look at our friends and neighbors and with Jesus say, if I've done something wrong, and sometimes we will have, if I've done something wrong, I'll own it, right? If I've made a mistake, if I've said the wrong thing, if I've done the wrong thing, if I've gone the wrong direction, point it out to me because I don't get it right every time. That's the difference between us and Jesus. But again, Peter, to juxtapose his position, he denies that he's a follower of Jesus, why? Because he doesn't want his wrongdoing to be brought into the light. Because he doesn't want justice. He doesn't want to be punished for his crime there, right? You and I have to be the kind of people who are seeking purity in our lives, who are living lives of integrity, so that with Jesus we can look at others and say, hey, if I've made a mistake, point it out. I want to know, I'll own it. We can move on from there. Not only that, though, look at what Jesus also says. He says, if I've done something wrong, he says, if, I say, if what I said is wrong, verse 23, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? The fifth thing I want you to see about Jesus' approach here is, is that it's courageous. Not only is he willing to face justice, but he stands up in the face of injustice. He's not afraid of opposition, He's not afraid of the punch in the face and if the punch in the face is misplaced he has the courage and the boldness to say that was wrong. I think there are many of us in our lives who, when we see injustice, we just sort of try and get away from it, right? When we see wrongdoing, we don't have that prophetic voice. We're not engaged prophetically in the lives of other people, and part of the reason why we're not engaged prophetically in the lives of other people to face up to injustice and wrongdoing is because we have not been living a life of demonstrable faith. But when we live a life of demonstrable faith, when what we say we believe and what we believe is fleshed out in our deeds and our actions— when it's fleshed out in our words and our attitudes, then we have the ability to speak with a prophetic voice. Jesus looks at the punching guy, right? And he says, that was poorly done. If I've done something wrong, okay. But if I haven't done anything wrong and I haven't, that's not allowed. What you're doing here is illegal, right? This This whole proceeding is illegal. But Jesus looks at this man and says, that's not all right. In our lives, we have the ability to stand up to opposition. We have the ability to stand up to injustice. And in fact, that's what the people of God are called to do. We're called to be people who would take a stand in the places where people are being oppressed or where people are having injustice done to them. We are meant to be the champions there. But many times we avoid that opposition of injustice because we we feel too guilty and ashamed about our own crimes, right? Right? We feel too guilty and ashamed about our own failures. That's, again, a reason why we want to be living lives of honesty. We want to be living lives of transparency, visibility. It's why we want to be living lives of purity. We want to be known by other people. What can be known about us is out and exposed. And we want to be living lives of courage. All that we see in Jesus' testimony reminds me of things that his followers later would affirm. So Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4.2, He says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says, we're not trying to sneak around. We're not trying to do anything in secret or in private or in the dark. Everything we're doing, we commend ourselves to your consciences. What? By by living honest, visible, known, pure, courageous lives. He'll say to, to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 1, 1.5, the aim of our charge is love, love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I think the difference we see here in John 18 between Jesus and Peter is that what Jesus has is a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. And what Peter has is a lot of fear. What Peter has is a lack of preparation for the questions that will come sort of even inadvertently. Peter denies because in some sense he wants to stay in the shadows. He's nervous about what people will say or think. He's fearful of justice and content to let injustice go unopposed. I think there are a lot of us who look at Peter in this case and we go, man, what a scoundrel. What a bum, you know? I mean, he had the opportunity to do something great there and he blew it. But before you get too judgy or before we get too quick to point the finger, can I, can I just say that, that what's happening here is no different than any of our denials. You and I are, are denying Jesus on a regular basis. We, we believe the right things, right? We can answer the right questions in the Bible trivia game. We know all the right stuff. And even at the core of us, we believe the right stuff. But what we believe is denied in what we say and what we do. Many times what we believe we are lying about in the kind of life that we're living. Peter here is what, he's interested in comfort. It tells us twice in this passage that he's warming himself by the fire. I don't want to build too much of a message around that, but I do think that what we see in this particular case is a guy who's more interested in his own comfort than he is in declaring the truth. I I have to say there have been many times in my life where I've missed opportunities to declare the truth of who God is, or missed opportunities to live out the love and the generosity of Jesus in community because I was more concerned about my own preferences and my own comforts. Peter here warming himself by the fire while Jesus is in chains. I think it's interesting that, that he, uh, he doesn't course correct after two denials, right? I, I sort of hope that like after the first denial, you'd be like, oh man, that's not what I meant to say. Why did I say that, right? Have you ever had those moments where you say the wrong thing here this slave girl goes, hey, you're not a disciple of Jesus, right? Just making sure. And you go, no, I'm not. And then you're like, no, that isn't true. I, I am a disciple of Jesus. You know, and you walk back to the slave girl and go, hey, just for the record, a minute ago I told you I wasn't, but I am. I'm an idiot. Sorry. I'm just going to go hang out by the fire, right? You wish he would fix it after the first one. But I love the fact that he there's a second, and he still doesn't course correct, and there's a third. You know why I like that? I, I mean, I don't like it, but I, I find solidarity in it. Are you Are you able to remember a time in your life where you did the wrong thing or you said the wrong thing and you thought, oh, that was the wrong thing. I said the wrong thing. I I didn't stand up for Jesus here. I didn't communicate. They asked me a question about my faith and I dodged it. I'm not gonna do that again. And then what? It's like 10 minutes and you do the same thing again. We go back again and again to the same failures, don't we? Peter here is doing the same thing. It's easy for us to look at him 2,000 years later and go, what a knucklehead, man, three times. But we do that all the time. If anything, it just, it just proves his humanity here that he falls into that same trap. I think about the opportunity that he missed. For all we know, and it's just speculation, for all we know, this slave girl and these other servants that are standing around this fire, for all we know, they'd heard good things about Jesus. Maybe they'd heard about the triumphal entry. Maybe they'd heard about the fact that he might be the Messiah. Maybe this question, even though it's looking for a negative response, maybe this question is going, will you tell me about your Savior? And instead, Peter dodges the opportunity. I think there are lots of times in our lives where people sort of crack the door just a little bit into their life. And they go, well, yeah, what were you doing this weekend? And we go, Oh, ah, just taking it easy. And they go, what, what do you think about what's going on in the rest of the world? What do you think about homelessness? What do you think about greed and injustice? What do you think about uh, you know, poverty? What do you think about these things? And we go, oh, yeah, I think those things are bad, right? And we just wimp out in our response. We have an opportunity to go, God has declared some very clear things about my response to all of the injustice in the world. Peter misses an opportunity, perhaps, to declare truth to these people who may have received it really well. He misses that. I want you to note, too, that when we try to protect ourselves, our selfishness actually exposes us. Let me say that again when we try to protect ourselves, right, we try to preserve our own comfort, our own sort of lurking in the shadows, when we try to protect ourselves, our selfishness actually exposes us. I, uh, I remember a time a few years ago when I was still living in Long Beach that I went into a comic book shop. Now, uh, I, I, I'm not collecting comics now, but for a long time in my life, I was collecting comic books. I can feel you judging me, so knock that off, but, I used to have regular comics that I bought and I'd go into the same shop every week and they knew which books that I wanted and so they'd set them aside for me. I spent way too much money on comics at that time, whatever, so I'd, I used to buy a lot of comics and at one time I was in the comic book shop in Long Beach and I'd get to the counter and they've got my books and I'm getting ready to pay for them and And then the guy behind the counter is like, Darren, he knows my name, right, because I'm in there all the time. He goes, Darren, I'm so glad you're here because we're shooting a television commercial today. Like, the crew's in the back, they're getting it all set up, but we need extras. Like, would you be willing to be in our commercial and you just, all you have to do is just do what you're doing, like come up to the counter and like set your books down on the counter like a customer, you know? And I was like, no, I don't think I can do that, right? Because what's running in my head is like, I don't want people to know that I'm a comic book guy, right? I want to be on TV, people looking at me and seeing me buying comics. Like, this is a thing I want to keep to myself. I got to live in this city, right? But what's going on there? I am a comic book guy. I want you to see that what, what Peter is doing here, what Peter is doing here is not renouncing his faith. He's lying about the truth of who he is. These denials are a lie about the truth of who he is. This isn't Peter turning his back on Jesus. This isn't Peter thinking, you know what, I don't think any of what Jesus told me is true. No, Peter meant all those things he already said. He was very passionate about all those things he already said. I mean, if if we want to just look at them for the sake of time this morning, Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, verse 30, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Verse 33, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away, right? Check this, Peter's like, hey, look, I don't know about these other disciples, that James guy seems a little flaky to me, like these other turkeys, they might bail on you, but not Peter, right? I'm a rock, right? I'm not going nowhere. And you imagine as he's making this protestation that Jesus is just like, oh, man, oh, come on, Peter, I wish you hadn't said that, right? Look at the next verse. He goes, "No, they all follow away. I'll never follow away." Jesus in 34 says, "Actually, Peter, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me 3 times." And Peter said to him, "Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you." Listen, Peter's not blowing smoke. When Peter answered Jesus and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I don't know what other people are saying about you, but here's what I know. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. I would rather die than deny you. I will never walk away. Peter's not making that stuff up. He believes that. This is a man who believes in who Jesus is, and yet he denies. What is it? It's not him renouncing his faith. It's him lying about the real faith he has to protect himself, and that's important. Because I would guess that there are probably many of us in this room who sincerely believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You believe that God created you with a purpose. You believe that you were created to glorify him. You recognize that disciples of Jesus are called to lay down their lives and follow him to take up their crosses. You believe that we were gifted and called and equipped to serve in the church. You believe that we were called to make sacrifices just like Jesus himself laid himself down. You believe those things in your core and yet your life and your words lie about what you believe on a regular basis. I wonder if there are places where what you believe you're lying about at work. You're lying about in your homes. You're lying about it in your neighborhoods. Peter doesn't walk into this intentionally to deny Jesus. He does it because it's easier. Because he's not prepared to declare the truth of what's going on in him. I'll tell you, there's, there's also two, two different things we want to juxtapose here as well. Last week we looked at Judas. And the betrayal and the denial of Judas is not the same thing as the betrayal and the the, the denying of Peter. The denying and betrayal of Judas leads where? It leads to death. The denying of Judas leads to death. Where does the denying of Peter lead to? It leads to transformational repentance. If we look at the story as it's relayed in Luke chapter 22... In Luke 22, verse 60, where it talks about his third and final denial, it says, Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about, and immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Imagine that moment. The rooster crows just like Jesus said it would. Jesus turns and looks at Peter across that courtyard, and says, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. Bitter weeping is not the response of someone who has turned his back on his faith. Bitter weeping is the response of someone who realizes he has not lived up to the faith that he has, that he has not fleshed it out in practice, that he's lived and spoken a lie that denies the truth of what he believes. This bitter weeping is an opportunity for him to turn. And we do see that Peter turns, he becomes a a bastion of the church. Nobody should be defined by their lowest moments, right? I think there are probably some of you in here who think of yourself only in terms of your worst failures. Can I tell you that this kind of exposure, this kind of exposure is an opportunity to reassess and to repent. Have you been living a lie Have you been speaking a lie that denies the truth of what you believe about Jesus? What you believe about redemption? What you believe about the purpose of his followers? What you believe about the intentionality of the church? Have you been living a demonstrable lie for what you say you believe? There is time to turn and repent. But don't look away from it. Look at it. Look at the lie. Look at the failure. Not to define yourself by it, but to turn away from it. To not make the same mistakes again and again and again. Peter here has an opportunity for a reassessment, for repentance, because he's exposed. You and I, we live our mistakes in real time, but God sees the big picture of our whole lives. This happens, this event happens in spite of a deep love for Christ. Denials are a lie. They're not a decision to renounce Jesus, at least not in this case. Judas, on the other hand, his denial leads to death. Why? Because there was no true faith. There may be some of you here this morning who've never believed in Christ. And in that case, the call to you is, will you believe? Will you surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus and be transformed? But if you're a follower of Jesus, then the question becomes, what are the ways in which your practice lies about what you say you believe? And what are the ways in which those lies have started to define you? Can I just tell you those things don't define you? It's why then Peter, when he's writing his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 3, right, famously. Peter, the guy who denies here. In 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15. You know this verse, maybe you don't know you know it, but when I read it you'll probably be familiarized here. He says this in 1 Peter 3. Peter says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect right what does peter say later in his life looking back on these events i mean you read first peter three he's thinking about his denials and he says listen church always be prepared what's the difference between jesus and peter in john 18 I mean, there's a lot of differences, but specifically with regard to their testimony, Jesus is prepared to testify in honesty, in visibility, in purity, right? Jesus is prepared. Peter would look at his life and go, I was, I was not prepared to give a, give a testimony, to give an answer to people when they asked me what I believe. I believed it. I truly believe it, but I was not prepared to declare it. You and I, we need to take the witness of Peter in 1 Peter 3 and be prepared. Be prepared to live out the truth we believe in honesty and visibility and purity, right? Courage. We want to live it out. Why? We don't want to make the same mistakes he did. If your life has been lying about what you believe, there is an opportunity for that exposure to turn you back to Christ, to live a life that is true, that is a true reflection of what you believe about Jesus and what you believe about yourself. Peter here doesn't just deny Jesus. He denies himself. My prayer, along with Peter in 1 Peter 3, is that you and I, who are followers of Christ, would not live lives that deny the truth of who we are, but that we would live lives that are an honest reflection of who God has created us to be and what he's shown us in his son and in his word. If you believe these things are true, then live that truth in your words and deeds. Would you pray with me? God, we recognize that that we all blow it, (laughs) that we're all broken, and we all make mistakes, and, and that without preparation to live the truth, to speak the truth, we'll fall into these same easy contradictions, these same easy deceptions, these same easy denials. God, we need you. We need you all the time, day in and day out. We need you to set a good example for us, to empower us by your Spirit, to remind us of the places where we've been false, Would you empower us and guide us and direct us to live lives that are true, that are a true reflection and not to deny you in the way we live our lives. We pray those things in Jesus' name, amen.